I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a lecture given by Dr. Steven Reisner at the New School for Social Research called Crazy Like a Fox, Evil is Not a Psychiatric Illness. It was originally presented on January 31st, 2017. There is a video of this talk at YouTube. Links to the video can be found in the text accompanying this episode, or just search for Steven Reisner at the New School, Crazy Like a Fox. For more, you can check out Steven's podcast, Madness the Podcast, where psychoanalysis and capitalism collide, and follow him at Twitter at Dr. Reisner. That's D-R-R-E-I-S-N-E-R. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Chapart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3 C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Christian, I'm the director of the New School Psychotherapy Program. The New School Psychotherapy Program provides affordable treatment to the community at large. It's my pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Stephen Reisner. Dr. Reisner is a psychological ethics advisor to PHR and was the co-author on experiments in torture. A founding member of the Coalition for an Ethical Psychology, Dr. Reisner has been on the teaching faculty of the International Trauma Studies Program at NYU the Program in Clinical Psychology at Columbia University Teachers College and at the NYU School of Medicine. Dr. Reiser has worked tirelessly to amend policies of the American Psychological Association that support psychologists' participation in unethical military and intelligence interrogations in places such as Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo Bay, and the CIA's black sites. Dr. Reiser previously was chief psychologist 
at Regent Hospital in New York City and has remained active in consulting on the treatment of post-war and post-natural disaster trauma victims internationally, including in Kosovo, the Kurdish region of Iraq, India, and Sri Lanka. He is also a consultant to the staff of stress counselors at the United Nations. Formerly an OBE award-winning director and actor, Dr. Reisner was consulted on the importance of the arts in post-war recovery projects in Peru and in Sierra Leone, and was a founding member of Theater Arts Against Political Violence, with whom he helped create theater works with Tibetan, Chilean, and Kosovar survivors of torture and exile in New York and in Kosovo. He was awarded the New York Psychological Association's 2010 Beacon Award and the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis 2016 Vision Award in recognition of his work on human rights. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Reisner. And 
then I give another talk and I change the book a little bit and I, you know, I, and I rethink things. But I would say that in the past two months, I've had to rewrite this book in my head every week because the situation is changing that fast. So I would say that the issue that I'm talking about tonight, the issue of is Trump crazy, um, I'm, I, I believe, I'm not sure about this, but I'm beginning to believe that that already is not the focus on people's minds. I think that the focus on, so that this, which I wrote this week, is already somewhat, I'm hoping, is already somewhat outdated. And that the issue on people's minds is what, how do we understand the force that Trump is? How do we get ourselves in this situation? And what can we do? now that we're in it. Um, so, even though I start out still with the book I wrote you know, five days ago um, about whether Trump is crazy or not, um, it's not the bulk of my focus because I've been writing sort of nonstop. Um, but anyway, let's talk about the trope that has been around for now for about a year which is that Trump is unfit to be president because he's mentally ill. Um, that Paul Krugman kind of famously uh, tweeted after the inauguration, um, an American first, a president who was obviously mentally ill the moment he took office. And then there are a bunch of psychiatrists and psychologists who are writing about Trump being ill uh, a number of politicians have said that he was too mentally ill. I mean, it was a political, it was an attempt, I think a really misguided attempt, to discredit his campaign. But all that it did was make his supporters feel more misunderstood. Um, so I, I, I guess I should explain the Goldwater Rule for those of you who have heard about it or don't know about it. Um, there is this rule in psychiatry that says that, it, this is after Goldwater was running for president, uh, I guess it was 1964, against Johnson, and uh, a thousand psychiatrists thought that he was uh, too mentally unstable to be president, and they wrote a letter to that effect, and the American Psychiatric Association was horrified at the ethical uh, violation of diagnosing someone you hadn't actually interviewed. I haven't noticed the American Psychiatric Association being quite so incensed at the CIA and the DOD and the government hiring psychiatrists and psychologists to profile world leaders outside of our campaign <laughs> and to make assessments and make use of those assessments. But supposedly the ethics seem to uh, come into play if somebody's running for president and that person may win and not uh, take too kindly to the American Psychiatric Association. Um, I personally think that the Goldwater Rule is ridiculous because I think that the well-being of the nation takes precedence uh, and if somebody's going to do a lay interpretation of what they see in public and make it clear that they've done that, uh, more power to them. The trouble is that it is usually really stupid analyses and doesn't 
reflect either anything useful about the candidate or reflect well on the field of psychiatry or uh, psychology. Um, so I will leave out Judith Herman's Harvard psychiatrist way of getting around the gold order rule by calling Trump unstable and saying that he needed an evaluation. Um, but let's talk about this question, because I mentioned that uh, my guess is that many people in this room still think that Trump is nuts. Um, and I think that there's a lot of good reason to believe that Trump has a mental illness. Um, he certainly has symptoms that we associate with mental illness. Um, I'm sure there are therapists in this room. I'm wondering if anybody wants to volunteer one of the, or some of the symptoms that Trump has that would make us question his mental stability. Anybody? I will. Grandiosity. Grandiosity. He certainly has grandiosity. <laughs> Narcissism. Narcissism. Impulsivity. Impulsivity. <laughs> <laughs> For all we know, it's difficult to get him falling asleep. Paranoia. Paranoia. Denial of reality. Denial of reality. These are pretty serious. <laughs> <laughs> the lack of regard for others. The lack of regard for others. The lack of compassion. The ability to see somebody. Together with dependency on others. Together with dependency on others. Okay. These, these, and do we have a diagnosis? Malignant narcissism. Malignant narcissism. I don't know that that's in the DSM. <laughs> okay, so this narcissism, narcissistic personality disorder is in the DSM, but malignant narcissism is our way of saying it's really bad narcissism. <laughs> My differential is really stage dementia, so I just want to <laughs> just keep in mind that Ronald Reagan um, was, you know, people went back and they analyzed his speech pattern linguistically when, during the first term and they could prove in hindsight that the dementia was already present. And so, so we should really try not to get to that age. <laughs> <laughs> but I, this is, there is a lot of research on Agatha Christie's last three or four novels, her use of language was restricted, but she still published three or four more novels. Um, so yes, the question of whether he's demented, and is that a prerequisite for becoming president of the United States? Um, okay, and for me, the, uh, the, the diagnosis based on psychoanalytic history uh, would be phallic narcissism, not malignant narcissism coming from Wilhelm Reich, but maybe we'll get to that. Um, so, I think, though, to be able to know whether we can apply these diagnoses to Trump, we have to ask, what is a mental illness, and what is mental health, and how do we determine? Because I looked it up online, and the definitions of mental illness are terrible, are vague, and that's why they say that 50% of Americans have suffered from a mental illness at some point in their lives. I you know, would say that there may be a bias on the part of the American Psychiatric Association in terms of you know, developing patient population <laughs> practices. But the, the two ways I think about how we do a diagnosis is either the normative, 
deviation from the norm, um, or uh, the subjective experience of suffering and uh, an inability to function. So we have like two basic categories. There's the category of normative. Um, Trump is not normal. He doesn't get reality. He doesn't treat other people the way they should be treated. He's grandiose. He's, he's paranoid. He, he's vengeful. He has anger management problems. Um, so, but if we talk about the subjective, which, by the way, is, I think, what psychoanalysts would want to do. Psychoanalysts would want to start with what the person believes they're suffering from, how they get in their own way, how they are not functioning, what they believe is the trouble, and help them overcome it based on their own desire. That's the subjective view. And from the subjective view, Trump does not have a problem. He doesn't feel bad. And he's functioning, I would say, pretty well, given that he's president of the United States. So then we have to get to the normative. Okay? We say he's not normal. He deviates from the norm. The, the, um, I, and if we look at all of those sim symptoms, how can somebody who is president of the United States be considered grandiose? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that, yeah, whose reality are we talking about now? Um, one of the things about the normative view, and he believes things that are, he's not in touch with reality. But if you look at statistics in this country, you will discover that more people in this country believe in the virgin birth than believe in climate change. That is a fact. 50% of people in this country believe actively in at least one conspiracy theory. In other words, one theory for which there is no evidence. The idea that people believe things that we would say in this room are not true, uh, I don't know that that is not normative. We may not like it, but I think that there's a a much bigger deal going on with Trump than the fact that he doesn't believe in reality the way we do. And I think that's that people do not appreciate the strategic power of his denial of reality. There's this wonderful scene in Citizen Kane where Kane is looking to publicize a war in Cuba and he sends his reporter to Cuba and the, the reporter sends back a cable Girls delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right about spending your money, stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. And Cain tells Bernstein, who read him the cable, uh, I have an answer. He says, Dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems, I'll provide war. Now, we could say that Cain was delusional and grandiose, but I think what we have to say that uh, some people, by the sheer force of their power, bullying, anger management problems, wealth, and ability to assess the fears and uh, imagination of the other, can make their delusions reality. And I think we have to say that Trump has done that. Um, I would say that, that Trump is a kind of version, an American version of 
what uh, Freud called, what Freud talked about how the artist may not be in touch with reality, but has a way, because of being an artist, of making their vision as an artist real. And I'm not going to read the long uh, quote about it, but, uh, but he talks about the artists fulfilling their desires through art. And he says he can only achieve this because other men feel the same dissatisfaction as he does with the renunciation demanded by reality. And because that dissatisfaction, um, which re results from the replacement of the pleasure principle by the, rea by the reality principle, is itself part of, part of reality. In other words, Freud is saying that the artist plays on our frustration and disappointment with having to give up the pleasure principle for the reality principle. And the artist weaves fantasies for the common person and in that way, the artist becomes successful, and the common person uh, gives you know, accolades and, uh, and truth to the artist's own fantasy of building fantasies. I would say that Trump, to a great extent, is the artist of our time in this way. He has turned reality into reality TV, and has managed to make reality, his reality, reality. So when he complains about voter fraud, he's not talking about what's real. He's talking about what he can use to affect what he's aiming for. When he talks about the inauguration crowd being too small, he's putting people on notice that they better get in line with his vision because that's the vision that has to be put forth to this country. That's the art. It's the art that is very dangerous. Um, so calling Trump crazy and the fantasy that therapists have, that if we could just get him into a consulting room and we you know, just treated him, he would get over his anger management problems and become, you know, I don't know what, some loving, you know, I, you know the transformation of energies of Scrooge, you know, of Trump. But that fantasy has its origins in some of the attempts to analyze Hitler, that Hitler's, you know, the analysis of Hitler's child, as if somehow understanding Hitler's childhood is going to give us any insight into what happened starting in 1933 and beyond. It, it's, Claude Lanzmann calls this endeavor an obscenity, an obscenity of understanding. And I think we have to take seriously that we are living a delusion. The delusion that Trump is delusional. Trump is strategic. And he uses all of his narcissistic, malignant narcissism, phallic narcissism, whatever you want to call it, he uses it to change the world um, successfully. And that is the So. We cannot condemn Trump for being crazy, and we cannot get any traction if we call him crazy, because it, it doesn't fit the situation. It really shows our, uh, our impotence to actually argue. Um, it's really putting something in a realm of fantasy that we have a uh, monopoly on the norm when, in fact, he has a much greater influence over the North at this moment.
So, we have to take Trump on, not in the arena of mental health, but in the arena of law, politics, justice, morality, the realm of values. And I need to talk a little bit about some concepts having to do with values, so that we can then play with those concepts in order to, for me, to help me talk about a strategy, hopefully, to fight the good fight. And I'm using the word good in good fight um, uh, on purpose. Okay, so there are three concepts that I want to talk about. Um, I have a lot to say, and I'm just checking out the time. Um, one of the concepts comes from psychoanalysis, not just psychoanalysis, but uh, it's gotten very popular in psychoanalysis these days. It's the concept of the third. The third is, uh, I'll, I'll explain it. Another concept comes from Agamben, uh, uh, and it's the concept of the state of exception. And then I want to talk about resistance, and my view of resistance in the context of the third and the state of exception. I'll try to be a little clear about what I mean by taking each of these in turn. The, the third is, I, I hate the, that work, I hate that, uh, that way of re referring to this issue, but um, I don't have a better one yet. I, what I'm basically talking about is the, is, has to do with moral, ethical, legal codes. The basic idea here is that there are different power relations among people, and all social structures and institutions are based on questions of how to handle power relations among people and what are the priorities of bringing people together. And, you know, in some places around the world and in many parts of history, the relationship of power and subject is a dyadic one. There's a, there are the people or the person in power, and there are the people or then there are the people who are subject to that power. That is the doer and the done to, and the one in power makes all the rules. Somewhere along the line, I believe that it comes, the possibility for this comes with the development of symbolic language, but that's a whole other chapter that I'm not going to bother you with right now. Um, but somewhere along the line, the idea came about that actually power relations should be determined not simply by power, but by some kind of moral, ethical codes or legal code. The idea somewhere along the line, and if you, is it the Ten Commandments? You can go back pretty far with that. Is it the Hammurabi Code? Is it uh, you know, the Magna Carta? Where do you want to locate this? Um, and how do you want to locate this? Uh, is a whole history of, of uh, political relationships. But the basic idea, and the Magna Carta is a good example of it, the basic idea is that there is a transcendent law. There's a transcendent way that things are supposed to be. So what we do is we are going to compare the way things are with this idea of the way things are supposed to be. And therefore, we judge the ones in power not only by what they do, but by the way they're supposed to behave. Even the king is beholden to the law. That's the basic idea. Even the president is beholden to the Constitution. Even
even the psychoanalyst is beholden to the basic rules of psychoanalysis, the ethical codes. You, the one who is in the authority position doesn't have the right to do anything that they want. They are also beholden to certain codes. You could say the code of the West for the lawman. You could say the criminal code, you know, honor among thieves. But there's always this idea that there is some code. And my argument is that hope in under tyranny only exists because there is an idea of an independent code. That the idea of hope, the idea of an alternative comes from some, you know, some, some code that says this is wrong. Some idea that we can hold to. And it's very useful in political systems, uh, enlightenment political systems, where you say, no, you can't do that. You're breaking the Constitution. You're violating these basic rules. So people have recourse. So that's the concept of the third. I kind of like code better, actually, as I'm thinking about it. Um, so then there is this other concept, the state of exception. Now, the state of exception presumes that there is a code that to which the powers that be are beholden to, let's say, the United States and the Constitution, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea is that in certain emergencies, the rules are suspended, and the person in authority or the people in authority become the law. And we've seen this. We've seen it in the United States after September 11, uh, in spades. We saw it in France after the Charlie Hebdo massacre. We saw it in the Civil War when Lincoln suspended habeas corpus because of the war. Uh, and he said, am I going to sacrifice all the laws for the sake of this one? Um, so what happens when you collapse the, the third, the, the code, into the rule of the authority? So you break the laws, right? You, you, if you look at September 11, the, the United States said that we don't have to be beholden to our treaties. We don't. We can use torture for evidence. We can torture. I mean, they that series of secret decisions gave the administrative branch all the power. Um, the same thing with uh, France after Charlie Hebdo. However, in France, their constitution allows for a state of exception for nine days. Now, to me, this makes sense. I believe that sometimes you have an emergency, and sometimes during an emergency, you might have to break certain rules. It's very dangerous. It has to be done with very smart, legal mind people who will take responsibility for it and come go public with it and then be, may hold themselves, hold themselves responsible. But there is something to be said for brief emergency powers that you then have to defend Afterwards. And the French Constitution has that. Except, of course, that people don't usually make the best clear-eyed decisions in the heat of the moment. 
So after Charlie Hebdo massacre, the government asked for an extension of those nine days to three months. And, now that, and after that, they were talking about changing the laws to make those things permanent. We had the Patriot Act in this country. Some of those exceptions became not exceptions. Um, so the danger is that, as Adam Ben says, the state of exception will become institutionalized more and more and more. So that governments, especially you know, capitalist governments where the interests or you know various kinds of governments, they they like to consolidate their power. So if they have a chance uh, to take extra power, it's very hard for them to give it up. After the Bush administration changed uh, issues of uh, NSA uh, invasion of privacy, um, ability to use abusive techniques in interrogations, um, President Obama issued presidential findings in order to curtail some of those abuses, but he didn't destroy those abuses. He didn't restore the state where the third, the Constitution, the law, put a check on those excesses. Instead, it became the whim of the president and the president's circle, let's say the principles group, which is the NSC, which uh, Maybe we'll get to later why that is so scary, but that is the group that makes certain decisions and has to follow certain uh, rules and powers and makes exceptions. And unfortunately, Obama did not radically try to change these and protest them. He sort of squeezed them and changed their shape. But as we see, at the moment he let go, they returned, and we are still in uh, the state of exception less and less exceptional. So what happens to people under the state of exception? Remember I said that it's the ability to appeal to a separate independent code or law or ethic that gives people hope. It's the ability to appeal to some value system that you can, against which you can judge what's going on that allows for dissent, resistance, and hope. When the power is in the, the government, when the authority makes the rules, people become, if they thought about it, hopeless. So at least during the Bush administration, many people just stopped thinking. Now I want to talk a little bit about resistance. Um, My view is that resistance comes up in the face of a concentration of power when people are trying to uphold a code. I mean, if you think of every dystopic science fiction movie or book ever made or ever written, this idea is the that there's some book that has been discovered, some ring that tells you the history, some old person that knows something, and that they, what they know is has something to do with a lost value system. 
that they want to reinstate, where they come from the future to find it here, or whatever it is, it's always the attempt to find hope through something that you can hold against this concentration of power. Um, and I'm going to argue, I'm going to, I'm going to take a, uh, I'm going to take a little detour into psychology and talk a little bit about uh, the sort of personal basis, I believe, of, of some of these, of how at least we in the West, or in, at least in America, I think, develop our own relationship with authority and with resistance, with independence, etc., etc. So I want to talk about a uh, concept that uh, Freud came up with in 1895, which he called the proton pseudos, which was this question of the first lie. And what is the significance of a lie? And um, I could talk about how Freud wrote about it, but I won't, because it'll take us too far afield, and I will get too excited by that part. <laughs> um, so I'm going to leave that aside, and I'm just going to talk about the concept of the first lie. Because think about this. Um, uh, OK. Think about what the psychological, what kind of psychological development is necessary in a small child to be able to tell a lie. Now, uh, you know, according to most theories of development, especially psychoanalytic theory, the child doesn't, and if you read Porner's complaint, he describes this very, very well, the child believes that the parents know everything. That the parents can read their mind, that, you know, you can't fool the parent because the parent is everywhere and knows everything, is omniscient, you know, omnipotent and immortal. Um, the parent is the narcissistic fantasy of all everything. So what does it mean for a child to tell a lie and to get away with it? Um, so I, I'll tell you a personal story of my first time. Um, I was, I think, about four years old. And I was playing with my good friend, Amy. And she had Simba. And um, I'm just remembering that the first time I told this story was here last year. <laughs> but so bear with me if you heard it before. Yeah? Silly putty. Okay, for those of you who don't know silly putty, it's a generational, generational, generational issue. Um, for those of you who don't know what silly putty is, silly putty was this magic substance. I think it still exists. That you can that comes in an egg. So, psychoanalysts, please. Um, and you take it out of the egg and you. With it, you stretch it out, you can do all kinds of But the coolest thing about Silly Putty is if you flatten it and you press it against a comic book, 
you can get the image of the comic book, and then you can stretch that, and you can do, you can have such a play with the world that it's phenomenal. And I coveted my neighbor's silly putty, and I um, I took her silly putty when we were moving on to something else. I grabbed the silly putty and I put it in my pocket, and then we went on playing. And then it was time to leave, and I put my hand in my pocket, and you know, my leg was warm, and the silly putty melts, and I didn't know it, and it was like all gooey in my pocket, and I started to cry. <laughs> and Amy's mother came out and said, what's the matter? And I showed her my pants, and she said, oh, don't worry, we can, we can fix that. She took a knife, she scraped it out of my pocket, and she said, it's okay, you don't have to cry. And I realized, at this very young age, that she had no that I wanted to steal the cinema. <laughs> she thought that I was just being a little kid who stupidly put the silly putty in my pocket and that she was going to make me feel better. But she didn't make me feel better. I, realizing that I had lied and I had gotten away with it and I had wanted something that wasn't mine and I was ashamed to say it. And what does this mean? This is a universe of mental development and ethical <laughs> Uh, self-awareness. It's a whole universe. And my argument is that children, all children, have to face this issue of when they are going to lie to their parents, when they're going to do something that isn't popular, when they want to keep something private or secret. So what happens when they're caught and the lie is exposed tells a lot about what is going to happen in the future. Because at this moment, the kid is faced with being separate from the parent. The parent says no, or the parent will say no. You just imagine it. And so you have to do something that keeps you separate from the parent. That brings about in the child a feeling of shame. Whether the child feels it's right or wrong, it's a feeling of shame. Separating from the parent is shameful. Think about the Bible story of Adam and Eve eating the apple. God comes down, says to Adam, what did you do? Did you eat the apple? And Adam says, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible, he says, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the apple. <laughs> it's your fault and her fault. Okay, and then they were punished, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and and you've got original sin for all this stuff. So the challenge of the shame, whether you stick with your guns or give up your guns, you've got to deal with a major issue. My argument here is that. If you give up your guns, you are repressing your own uh, ethical development for the sake of the rules and for the sake of the relationship. If you hold on to your own ethical compass, you are separating with all of the pain that comes with separating from the parent holding your own moral compass. And I would I'm not going to go into detail about this, but I think that this 
I'm hoping I'll draw on this so that, you, in a way, you understand when I make the case about Trump and what we can do about it and the third and resistance. So just bear with me about that. But in psychomotilitic terms, we would call one the, the deferring to the relationship and the fear of punishment. That's what Freud called the superego. And the superego causes us to repress and to, I would say, be sort of neurotically dependent on others and easily regress to a dependent state. The other alternative of holding a separate council, which is much harder, leads to ethical development, what Freud calls the ego ideal, that against which we compare our actions that are internal. And I would say that that is the kernel of resistance, the natural independent sense that we are interested in a code that is not necessarily the dictates to preserve the relationship at all costs. We align that code with other codes. The basic idea is that the most important thing is power and protection. The most important issues are that there is enough power so that we can feel protected and that our way of life continues and the authority you know, serves to protect those he loves, and my job is to be one that he or she loves. Um, and listen, that's not a far-fetched value system. I mean, you'll find it very well articulated in Freud's civilization and its discontent when he says, why should I love my neighbor when my neighbor is as likely to want to kill me as help me? And if it said, I should treat my neighbor, he thought it was ridiculous to say, treat your neighbor as you want to be treated, and argued instead that you should treat your neighbor as your neighbor would treat you if he had the power. That, and he said, man is a wolf to man. That is this value the value system based in what Freud would call the death drive later on. I uh, know at that point, the, the, the need for power and protection and to separate out what's mine and what's theirs. Um, I would say that the alternative value system, the value system based on a code, um, is based on principles of egalitarianism, justice, well-being, Freud talks about the origin of justice is sibling rivalry. How, you know, since we can't be the favorite, we want everybody to be equal. So it's sort of pragmatic. <laughs> justice is a kind of pragmatic evolution from the idea that, you know, the power dynamic doesn't work very well if, if you're not an only child. So the alternative is this idea that there has got to be a just system. Everybody is equal under the system. And it leads to a kind of humanitarian view, trying to raise the well-being of everybody. Um, each one has a kind of uh, democracy to it. The man is a wolf to man democracy is the idea that, uh, that everybody has the same opportunity to take power, but it's sort of a Darwinian world. And depending on your luck and your skill, You'll do it, and if you don't do it, they'll do it. It's egalitarian. Everybody has the opportunity to screw their neighbor. Um, the, the value system based on the, the code, or the third, 
is also sort of democratic, and the idea, though, has to do with doing the most good for the most people. They're two different value systems. Um, I would argue, I would argue that if it is true that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, I would like to argue that the basis of a just government is actually the code. The idea that we're beholden to certain values and that we have an egalitarian system. And that the, the power, you know, man is a wolf to man alternative must be reserved for the state of exception. When there is an actual and imminent threat, we have to, and my true view in my heart of hearts is that even at those moments, even during the worst threats, we have to hold on to our central code. We have to hold on to some of the, some of the core values that cannot be fungible, that cannot be manipulated. So even though there's reason for exceptions under some rare circumstances, basically, that you know, you don't kill the innocent, you don't torture, you don't rape, there, there are, you know, there are probably ten rules that we would find pretty consistent, like the Ten Commandments, that we would find But we find them through history in all cultures, something in common, and those I think are rock solid no matter what. Those don't get accepted, and if they do, we are in serious trouble and have to see it as a serious warning sign. Um, and I, I couldn't include torture among other things there. Um, and that the biggest threat to that sense of a just government is when the population is manipulated into extending and expanding the state of exception so that it overthrows in an ongoing basis the state where there is allegiance to a code. Um, I will call that evil. The manipulation of the state of exception for increased concentration of wealth and power. It's not so different from what Naomi Klein calls the chakra. The idea that government manipulates a shock in order to concentrate wealth and power. While, and there was a way to understand the Monday night massacre and the entire weekend of immigration, immigration hysteria is that the Trump administration threw a grenade into our public consciousness in order to do some really scary things that then weren't noticed, like changing the NSC, the National Security Council, such that a brilliant strategist of exceptional emotional concentration of power was put permanently on that, uh, that council. And the head of the military and intelligence 
whose responsibility is to somehow put a check on the power of the president and give another perspective, were taken on. So that, think about this. Think about the idea that right now, and that council has got special powers, but as far as I understand, the chief, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the head of national intelligence are supposed to be on that council by statute, by law. So suddenly, the magician got us to pay attention to this hand while doing his manipulation of reality with this hand. And that manipulation of reality is not only dangerous, certainly not mentally ill, but evil. Um, I, so that's my definition of evil. I will call the fight to restore a value system as the basis for human social order, politics, and human relations. I'm going to call that the good um, with the caveat that it really needs to align with a kind of history of attempts to define what's good. So it's, there are codes and there are codes, but there's also a history of, of sort of philosophical evolution that has to do with the definition of the good, in fact, philosophy is that. Um, okay. Once this takes place, there are basically three responses among the people. Once we have the situation that I think we are faced with. One, there are those who take pleasure in the sheer aggression and specialness attendant on the state of exception, the power expressed, et cetera, et cetera, a sort of patriotism of power. There are those who are determined to resist and look for the means. Uh, unfortunately, most of the time, resistance is of the mind, and we have to talk about that. And there is the majority who are frozen and do nothing. And I don't want us to judge the majority who become frozen. I believe it is a natural response to the concentration of authority um, in, because first of all, when this happens, it feels like an emergency. And so, and second of all, the idea of at those moments separating oneself from all of this power in this world of chaos and trying to do something to oppose it, that takes a special kind of courage. And we can't condemn people for becoming numb in the face of that. I spent my childhood, I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. I imagine you could have guessed that. Um, but I spent my childhood condemning all the people who turned a blind eye. And I think we have to think again. The issue is not what makes them turn a blind eye. That's obvious. Our question is, what does it take to mobilize that? Um, OK, so. 
I'm going to talk a little bit. Well, actually, no, I think I'm actually doing okay. Time-wise. So now, if we look at history, we can find way too many examples of of states that followed some kind of code, some kind of value system, some kind of enlightenment government. Um, and a state of exception was introduced and the government was changed into an authoritarian government. I mean, there are so many. The history of Latin America has that all, you know, has so many numerous occasions of that aided by the CIA. The history of African democracies after colonialism, where there's an election and then the elected uh, the, the elected president just doesn't leave power when the military decides that it has to re-establish uh, stability in a country that is full of unrest because of the of the democratic impulse, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I think that. That is all true, and I think that the belief that some people have that eventually goodness wins um, really depends on the moment of history you happen to choose as the the win. So if you know a, a despot is overthrown, we say goodness wins. But when that democracy is overthrown, we you know we have to say evil won. And what we have to understand is that the fight, this fight, doesn't end. This is a fight that we all have to be vigilant about, always. And I think that we became complacent in this country. And because of the distance from World War II, because it's been 67 yeah, 67 years at the end of World War II. A generation has most of America, very few Americans actually, remember the lessons of World War II. Um, other than as history, we had a very complacent period. And we didn't even have the threats to our physical bodies en masse that comes with the wars up until the 60s and early 70s, because wars after that period have a volunteer army and are mostly mechanized. And so the threat of the carnage that comes, to use Trump's word, that comes with this, you know, the, the loss of our code in Europe, in the whole world during the Second World War, in the carnage that you know, was Vietnam, we, we look at it academically because we ourselves have not for a very long time had our lives on the line. Um, and so my argument is that we began to give up our democratic code in favor of increasing encroachment of the state of exception starting in starting in with the September 11th without a doubt 
that paved the way. That the idea that torture was okay. 50% of our country has believed that torture is okay in some circumstances. Now, since, you know, for the past like 10 years, 12 years, and it was not that way before the year 2000. Um, so the codes are evaporating. We are accepting more and more invasion of privacy. The concept of privacy is eroding. And one of, one of my arguments based on this personal ethical stance is that the child has to understand that ethics grows based on a private psychological space, based on the separation of the peering eyes and all-knowing eyes of the parent or the government. If we do not have a private space, we just say, you know, we'll say, Oh, well, what does it matter if we have privacy? Just don't do anything wrong. And then we can publish anything on Facebook. But then there's no chance to challenge what's right and wrong within internal space. There's no ethical center that comes from privacy and separateness. Um, now, I've been reading Hannah Arendt's Totalitarianism, which is apparently number seven on Amazon's book of bestsellers right now. Um, Amazon, I think, is being turned on its head. Number one is 1984. Number seven is Hannah Arendt's Totalitarianism. And what popped up on my Amazon page under self-help was Hannah Arendt's on violence. <laughs> Um, but so I'm reading Hannah Arendt's uh, Totalitarianism, and she said, basically, she delineates in three options um, how this evil that I'm talking about, the expansion of the state of exception, uh, so that it, it inhibits people's ability to think, and to, so they accept the expansion of power, has reached totalitarian i.e. nightmarish proportions twice, at least in the 20th century. And of course, that's the Soviet system and the Nazi system. And, um, and when you read Hannah Arendt on totalitarianism, some of it, some of it is scarily familiar. So let me just read you I mean, I'm just opening the page to anything. It wasn't a quote I was looking for, but she says, the insanity of such systems lies not only in their first premise, but in the very logicality with which they are constructed. The insanity of the system is based on their internal logic. In other words, they are insane systems because of what passes for normality. Um, so, so totalitarianism differs from other forms of political oppression. It develops entirely new political institutions and destroys all social, legal, and political traditions of the country. 
no matter what the specific, the specific national tradition or the particular spiritual source of its ideology, totalitarian government always transforms classes into masses, supplants the party system, and uh, shifts the center of power from the army to the police. Okay, I, I can go on, but you get the picture. The picture is, what I'm trying to say is that I don't believe we are there yet by any means, but my warning has to do with the possibility that under Trump, we are moving there and, we, and our country doesn't remember the rules of what, uh, uh, doesn't remember the consequences of not stopping this immediately. Um, so, what Hannah Arendt says about those two stories is that they each have a certain ideology, but the ideology is a kind of narrative of specialness having to do with the history of, of, this, of its own country. And she refers to the Nazi ideology of nature, that there is a natural justification for the rules applying differently to these people, and for the Soviets, it has to do with history. There's a historic justification for the rules changing, and for everything being turned on its head, and all the democratic systems being destroyed in favor of the power that will convey and make manifest this ideology. And my belief is that Trump and his team have identified a particular American source well, they've mastered and expanded on an incipient American ideology that may make us vulnerable to American totalitarianism. Um, and there are three components to this ideology. And I think we have to be acutely aware of how Trump and his team have been redefined, not only Trump and his team, but the neoliberals for the past 20, 30 years, Reagan, etc., there's been a kind of a development of changing the American story. And the first element of, this, of these three is the idea of American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism was once the idea that we were an experiment in democracy like no other, and it gave us certain responsibilities, and it put us in the public eye, and we had a responsibility to preserve that experiment and be uh, beholden to the experiment in democracy that is our Constitution and that was our revolution. That was this idea of American exceptionalism, but it quickly became a story of we do everything better and the rules don't apply. And if Trump is the one who doesn't deal with reality, every candidate who ever said that we have the best education system in the world, that we have the best medical system in the world, etc., etc., simply they appeal to the ideology of being an American, certainly not to the facts. So there's the national identity as exceptional. There's national economics, which has become in my lifetime, over the past like 30 years, the domain of neoliberalism. And neoliberalism is such an insidious aspect of the transformation of American ideology 
that most people don't even know that it happened. Um, David Foster Wallace tells this joke about these uh, two young fish swimming along, and an older fish swims up to them and says, how's the water? And one of the two fish says, the water's fine. And then they're swimming away, and that fish turns to the other little fish and says, what's water? <laughs> I'm telling you that neoliberalism is the war, and we don't get it. What's neoliberalism? Neoliberalism is a meritocracy based on finance. That's it. It's a meritocracy based on the values inherent in financial success. It has all of the, uh, all of the, rhetoric of, of meritocracy and democracy, but folded into it has to do with a reification of the power structures that be, and a glorifying, using this value system, a glorifying of the concentration of wealth, and a self-blame for those who are not successful economically. And so, Academia is no longer a place where people learn to think. Academia is a place where faculty is hired as long as they bring in grants. Medicine is no longer the idea that we are trying to make life more, more healthy, more, more protective, more productive for the mass of people. Medicine has become the opportunity to make money by developing medicines, and by, uh, by ordering tests, and by avoiding losses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The whole idea, arts are no longer the exploration of ideas, but the value is accorded to the value of the work of art. We spend a long period losing sight of experimentation for experimentation's sake, art to explore art, the idea that these are social goods, that knowledge, that laboratories, etc. This, this is neoliberalism, and it has it is responsible for the gross division of and concentration of wealth and division between the wealthy and the poor. So neoliberalism is part of this I would call these, um, I would put these, all of these concepts that I think Trump and his crowd are drawing from and strengthening in a march toward totalitarianism based in a kind of, if I were going to diagnose the country's problem, I would call it malignant narcissism. Um, but I would say that these are within the realm of the character idea of a kind of narcissism, where if you're rich, you must be successful. If, uh, if you know, you are exceptional, you, the rules don't apply to you. Um, but, but there's one, uh, give me a second, let me catch up to myself. Okay. 
But there's one more shift that I think goes hand in glove with those two, American exceptionalism and neoliberalism. And it happened around the same time. And it's surprising and distressing. And it has to do with the American identity that has to do as, I don't know how to put it exactly other than the proliferation of the sense of self as a victim. And I first noticed this around the year 2000 when I was working on trauma. And I, it, it, there were a number of bestsellers about people who were suffering memoirs. And it turned out that they were lies. You know, there was this famous case of this guy who said he had been a child in Auschwitz and he had been in Switzerland. And there were quite a few of these. And I was wondering what happened to America where in the 40s and 50s people lied about their heroism and everybody was exposed as not being the hero that they said they were. And then in the 90s and aughts, people were lying about their victim status. it tells us that being a victim had become, in a sense, commodified. It had a value. It was worth lying to achieve that status. Um, and I believe that identity politics causes a lot of problems when it is expressed in the narrow language of suffering, rather than in the broad language of justice. And it is a slippery slope that plays into the hands, and played brilliantly into the hands, of the alt-right, who now have taken identity politics to their own places with a, you know, with a great zest and feeling of justification and turning the table. Once we shift from the value-based identity to the, what I would call the narcissism or exceptionalism-based identity, we, we play into the hands of those who would exert a certain kind of power. And the power is, now, who is the great exemplar of neoliberalism, right? The one who gets all the toys, it wins. Uh, and therefore, what I say is true. Everything I do and say is the best. And the exemplar of that, the exemplar of narcissism, but I'm talking about narcissism as a, as a kind of a character style, not as a mental illness. Please put that aside is Donald Trump. When Donald Trump says, America first, he is saying, and he says, I will give it to you. I will protect you. I'm the only one, he says. What we have is a complete collapse of authority into the president, into the, you know, into the leader. We have a population that is frightened and 
simply wants to be protected by the leader, and we have a language of suffering that is being recognized by the leader. And it is that last piece, because make no mistake, there is genuine suffering going on in the middle of this country. And more than that, I have to say, there is the perception of extreme suffering going on in the middle of this country. And why is it? It's, I mean, there are economic reasons, there are labor reasons, there are the reasons that people are underemployed, people are, are not given the opportunity to be employed because the wealth has become so concentrated and there's no vision of how to care for the needs of the people in this country to be productive, to have an identity based on certain values. So instead, there's an identity based on suffering, being wronged, losing the days that were great, and looking for someone to restore. And that perception of victimization, which is actually the result of neoliberalism and American exceptionalism, but not experienced that way. It's experienced as part of an American identity of injustice and others taking, it, taking, it, taking an advantage. We are suffering because others are being treated unfair, getting unfair benefits. It's all this, it's all based on a kind of regression into a narcissistic state, which I don't call a pathology, I call a cultural, social tragedy that our people have been oppressed and manipulated. And that <coughs> oppression and manipulation put Trump into power. And um, He's so smart and so good at this that he shares the power just enough to make other people feel they'll get power, and the rest is the descent into totalitarianism. So, how do we respond to this? All right. I mean, I mean there are a couple of things that we have to do. One. And this, I think, everybody is doing in a way that I have not seen since, you know, 1970. People are in the streets reasserting what is right and what is wrong. People are not, there, there's huge numbers protesting, articulating why they're protesting, uh, upholding a value system. That code is everywhere. And that is a very big difference. I don't know. I don't, I'm not a good enough historian of 1933. I don't know if there were people in the street. But I can tell you that actually um, asserting the value system of protest through civil disobedience, political action, being on the ground relentlessly, taking real estate, occupying the airport, Occupied. I mean, that was what the strength of Occupy was. That there was the, the presence of the reminder of a value system. We are eating our children by keeping them in debt. We are killing our nation by 
our healthcare system. Those are values, basic values that our government is supposed to uphold. Housing, healthcare, education, and protection. Our country, in its neoliberal way, saw every one of those as an opportunity to indebt its citizens. And now, I'm happy to say that people are on the street fighting. So that's, of course, one. Two, and this is the biggest issue, the big, okay, there are those, there are three kinds of people, as I said. There are those who get excited about the power that they see and are really glad to see the, the, you know, the system overturned, a hand grenade thrown into the, 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 the complacency of America. And they, you know, and they're very excited. That became a very big number. But I don't think that it's going to remain a very big number. I think at its core, that's a small then there are those who are in the streets protesting. And it looks like a very big number, too. We have, you know, 1.2 million people in Washington. That's huge. But still, in actual voting numbers, it's big, but not that big. The biggest number are those in the middle. We've got to stop speaking about those people like they are crazy. We've got to stop speaking about those people like they are deplorable. We have to stop othering the ones who are doing all this othering. <laughs> we, have to, we really have to try to understand the desperation that exists that makes this country vulnerable to what has happened. Because we have to find a way to remind the bulk of America that there's a value system outside of the thrall of Trump's power and his reality TV in the White House. So the third thing we can do, and now I'm going to undo everything that I said so far, and go back to this definition of mental health and mental illness. I believe that there's one more thing that we have to be aware of. And that has to do with what happens to a government that concentrates its power in a totalitarian way. What happens to this character, this narcissistic character, this phallic narcissist, malignant narcissist, charismatic, aggressive leader, when he's taking power, many, many, many people want to jump on that band. Many, 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 many people want him to protect them. Many people see this as the savior that's going to change the world. When he gets power, the underside of narcissism, when narcissists break, I don't believe that narcissism is a mental illness, I, unless it interferes with functioning and happiness. I don't believe that sociopathy is a mental illness. I don't, I don't believe that, you know, that personality disorders are mental illnesses unless they interfere subjectively with functioning and, uh, and well-being. But there is another definition of mental illness besides the normative and the subjective. And that has to do with a rapid change in behavior, thinking, and emotions. 
that is out of the kind of control of the subject, where they are, where they suddenly or quickly or rapidly change their personality strongly, and be, and their character, their 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 actions, thoughts, and and feelings become dangerous to themselves or others in a way that is not part of their uh, ideology. And that change, we've seen it happen with Hitler, we've seen it happen with Stalin. Um, what happens is that everybody wants to join this, uh, this power gravy train as it's getting power, but then once it gets power, and once it's uh, in charge, very often what happens is that it has to destroy all resistance. Because any idea that is antagonistic to the ideology is a threat to its antagonist and is experienced by the leader as a threat to their very continuing in power, sometimes to their very being, and you get a kind of a paranoid, aggressive, I don't even think we need to call this mental illness, to be honest. I think we can call it a political war strategy that develops the extreme of the state of exception, where the only thing that matters, because the difference between the state of exception and a, and a, uh, a government based on a code. The difference is that the government based on a code exists for the betterment of the people. The government that exists in the state of exception exists for the perpetuation of state power. That's the basic difference. So when this team begins to consolidate its power, all it cares about is the continuation of its power. And it sees any kind of threat as intolerable a kind of paranoid state, and I'm not calling this mental illness, I'm calling it strategic. I, as I'm thinking about it, I was going to call it mental illness, but now on my feet, I'm changing that. I, don't, I think that it is strategic. It is the attempt to hold power no matter what. And so the very people who were dying to get in become afraid to leave. because leaving is scary. During that period, when the group becomes so internal, the group passes edicts that are pretty antagonistic to the needs of the people. For a while, I believe we will have a kind of exceptional, exceptionalism-based policy and the, good, the great example is the carrier air conditioner factory. You know, Trump will be kind of like the leader who, by his largesse, will give these people jobs and will give these people jobs. There won't be a change in the economy that makes, empowers people through a, a view of labor issues. There will be, by his largesse, a kind of lottery win. But the promises are not going to be fulfilled, of course, except in dramatic, ridiculous ways. But the, the 
vast majority of the people are not going to have their lives improved. And at that moment, we have a crossroads. We have the possibility that those people will have to do what happens in Germany and in the Soviet Union, where the masses have no choice but to get their pleasure from the power of the leadership and sacrifice for it. But our job is to prevent that from happening. Our job is to make sure people understand that they are being betrayed. And that they are being betrayed on every level. We have to anticipate this. We have to articulate this. We have to communicate this in an ongoing way. Because the temptation to fall into line will be great. But that's why we need a powerful, active, and widespread resistance. And so, if we're going to call this a mental illness, we have to improve our resistance to it. Um, that's all I've got to say. Now, to get to our code, 
being immutable as opposed to, uh, you call it the exception, which you're right, and you know, Hannah Rensky's exception, that very convincing, but actually at some point the exception becomes a counter code. And I think that uh, actually Trump and his people have been utterly brilliant at that, and of course Hitler was brilliant at it, and, you know, he has a good model to follow there. Um, so that I agree with your terms. There's a code, there's an exception. Uh, the use of the lie is interesting, but I, I'll leave that. It's a, you know, I, I think one of the points there is that Trump is a liar too, so you'd be lying against the liar. But I, I consider that in mind. Let's go to the, the big point, which is that um, when someone turns the exception into a counter code, where do we go to show that the code is immutable? Without yeah, God. I, I tried to address it, but I, I said a lot. So I don't know, I'll try to elaborate that point. Um, I think that there are two value systems. One is dyadic and one is triadic. And that the dyadic one is based on power and the triadic one is based on values. I would go so far as to say it's based on love and values versus power. Um, and I believe that the that it is really important not to consider the triadic code, the code that we align with, based on the history of the development of the concept of the good as immutable. Because that is actually that shifts it right to the superego, the dyadic position. The, this code is immutable, we know what's right, what the hell are you thinking? Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a lecture by Dr. Steven Reisner called Crazy Like a Fox. Evil is not a psychiatric illness. Originally presented at the New School for Social Research on January 31st, 2017. For more, Check out his podcast, Madness, where psychoanalysis and capitalism collide. And follow him on social media at Dr. Reisner. You can also check out my previous interview with him, Rendering Unconscious Episode 90, as well as a previous lecture that I posted as Rendering Unconscious Episode 6 on the dance of the occult and unconscious in Freud. First presented at the first Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult Conference in London, 2016. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. And now a piece from the soundtrack to the film Lunacy. Created by Carl Abrahamson. With vocals for the soundtrack by me. You can listen to the full soundtrack at Highbrow Low Life's Bandcamp page. That's highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. And watch the film Lunacy at our Vimeo. 
Just visit tripart.net and go to the film section and look for Lunacy. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. Enjoy. Body's mystery and power. Come more creative and writers reason why the artistic world can't ultimately accept Taliban. Indeed, the final across the world blow. It is a quality that manifests most spiritual and physical and perhaps a worthy statement of intent. Thanks again, I look. Writes. Everyone carries a shadow. Documentation. Continues to unfold. Precise confrontation. Conference. Still, I could never avoid thee. To forget nothing and illustrate that would be who we meet, whatever is. A spiral, a serpent, the passions of the soul. Alcistis and Peter, electricity and elementals. Atonal. There are no existential safety nets. Imagination, not only two, both seen while. The reflected light of the moon isn't brutally revealing, but faint, suggestive, ocularly conducive to Occultism. Eyes. Just gotten to the point. The cool. That is communal. Tricks and impressions of association and fantasy. This reflected light is also conducive to beauty. In anything too. States to couples that it lessens contrast and thereby inherent dualisms. This has been well used in our own recent of the things that like minded culture through the development of photography and cinema in which lightning techniques an entire scene have 
the music lyrics. I believe we seen science very seldom focus on harsh directed light but rather on subtle nuances of reflected light repetition that matters but rather the space that is created by the difference you see this concept tasteless everything is because the sun is simply too bright to watch we have become accustomed to watching the moon instead we cherish what's visible and didn't know existed we know anything regular is a for the first time i'm telling flipped in and how much i need and comfort to the human mind in the case of the moon literally so it's not just a fairly familiar orb in your every move and the sky we literally see the same side of the full moon most every time we watch it the full moon in my time I'll wrap my heart always displays the same side to us as it revolves around its own axis parallel to its revolving over in the sense his habit with around the earth and that takes just about the same amount of time no wonder then we're as ears and minds fascinated by the dark side of the moon as we are in coming out of hers ourselves a photograph front of the cafe the landau is pulled by two horses a here were no draw coachman and the footman both in livery are sitting my typewriter and activity in fact in the two i also noticed as the human gaze has gradually drifted from the the microcosmic over the further or to allow for things to time you see and millennia we have also downsized our capacity for example a friend bigger contexts for the sake of official announcement the golem and the dancing girl symbols in mythology used to consist of the most powerful and potent great cut up boggling stuff that helps solidify or godly shape today we're sadly striving for a brutal demythologizing same lines processed through technologies that allow neither longevity nor potent symbolism 
where is the expression of it associated with mythological moon today of life itself whether still or moving particles inside this plastic buzzers for my of the tape recorder after figures pattering blindly behind enhance their lives not as tourists who fashion all cultures have revered nine force in joint ventures with the matter dust perambulating provender masculine sun of course there are exceptions to the rule the Germanic language has the moon as masculine and the sun as feminine. I, for the discovery of the mother's masculine force and the sun, a warm, life-giving covering of her own failings and the facts of perception. Climate of the psychic, come back and put what? are attracted to each other and overflow. I am amazed. Have more like each other and sort dead. A key to mythological strength is the use of symbols within the stories told. No wonder that the sun print such strong presences in human stories that most often retell sexual tales we deplete and death and rebirth mysteries into the evening events of art talks and music is and goddesses to the sky attributed to the stronger forces out there in space goddesses abound. One of the first occurrences of moon divinities is actually a male one. The Babylonian god, Sin. But from there, and we tend to, on, it's been mostly goddesses. Evening. Seems much better can become. See it remarkably in the body's fascia, a coherent web of the is to be. The interior of every, and the less it is embodied in the biology, boys have penises and a group strength that is constantly situations in individuals' conscious life. On dichotomy, male, female, a mark of the primitive, mirror image, when we begin to break connective tissue to be she 